so I think that that in so many ways, uh, Millet promised something that was believable or not, but mostly he talked the more brutish uh, uh, civil society in which we live. You know, this is what it is. The state is not going to save you. I think that in so many ways, he. I don't think people fully believed that the total liberalization was going to bring equality and prosperity for all. Mm. Uh, I think it was more sort of an acceptance of the reality in which many of the voters were. A big part of the of the political spectrum, including Kirchnerismo, including Massa, uh, and including the center-right uh, coalition, were speaking towards uh, a voter that they have in mind that was present in Argentina from the 1940s to the 1970s. We're going to go back to work. What does that mean for a kid who has Mm -hmm. never worked? His father has never worked. His grandfather has never worked. Uh, We have to get, again, this normal, un país normal, this normal country in which everybody has access to hospitals. How did that appeal to people who have seen hospitals as a place that, that is sort of denied to them, to their parents, to their grandparents? They have lived two or three generations in a radically different world. That is not even nostalgia. Everyone, welcome back to Bunga Cast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hokuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and today we're talking about Argentina. We're recording this on Monday, the 23rd of October, and just yesterday, Argentina held national elections. So I'm very happy to welcome Ernesto Seman, uh, who's a professor of history at the University of Bergen in Norway. And his most recent book is the very intriguingly titled A Brief History of Antipopulism. Uh, Ernesto is someone who's been working on Peronism for a long time, but uh, he tells me he has switched to writing about anti-Peronism for that most recent book. Ernesto, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for, for having me. I'm, I'm wonderful. I, I didn't sleep enough, uh, but, uh, but I'm great, yeah. And I'm sort of <laughs> relieved by, by, by the results. So I was following the elections as well here, but I'm at the same time zone as, as Buenos Aires. Um, I, I imagine in Norway, you're five hours ahead and, and it was very late in the night. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I guess at some point around one or two, uh, which is way far after I usually go to bed, I, I decided that it was the election already called and, uh, and woke up with the same results. So, yeah, we'll so, become in uh, a predictable country. Suddenly, <laughs> and, and, and unexpectedly. <laughs> well, right, exactly. So the surprise was that there was no surprise. So like Argentina held these elections in a context in which you have inflation at 140 percent. The economy contracted by nearly 5% last quarter. And even the current president, Alberto Fernandez, of the center-left Peronist coalition, didn't even run for re-election. So 
I hoped <laughs> when I had arranged uh, this interview with you to be talking about a new president of Argentina. But instead, we have an inconclusive uh, first round. There'll be a runoff in three weeks. And that'll be between the Peronist Sergio Massa, uh, who's currently economy minister, and Javier Millet, who um, listeners may know we've mentioned him maybe before. Uh, but he's this wacko libertarian and right-wing culture warrior who I think looks like an angry combination of Van Morrison and Ronnie Wood um, and is so obsessed with his dog that he got it cloned four times and named them all after libertarian economists. So, you know, really cool guy. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, Ernesto, um, were you surprised that there was no surprise that uh, Peronism held on, came in first? Yeah, I'm absolutely surprised. Uh, maybe, maybe not the last 24 hours or so, but but yeah, in, for the most part, yeah, because, uh, well, pretty much everything you said, we usually, we have learned uh, the hard way and, and the other way not to have sort of an economicist uh, reading of politics and an electoral politics uh, yet, <laughs> you know, as uh, 150% of inflation, uh, it's a really tough uh, a platform for, for a political campaign. Uh, and if you're the Minister of Economy uh, of all people, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was really hard. And the perfor- Millet's performance uh, in the, during the primaries uh, was really, was the real surprise, even for those like me who have uh, talked and, and, and argued and written about Millet as something that was not a passing uh, event. It was not a media invention. It was not something uh, uh, easy to dismiss. Uh, Many of us believed that he was able, for several reasons that we can talk about that later, uh, that he was able to express some sort of rejection uh, to crucial legacies of these 40 years of democratic um, regime or transition. I don't like the, the word transition that much, but the democratic regime, and he was able to actually uh, uh, embrace and embody uh, this this kind of uh, um, uh, criticism to, to some of the shortcomings in, in, in the economy, but not only uh, of these 40 years. And, 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 and that is something that I think he did. And and expresses something that is still there and that is going to be expressed uh, through his, uh, uh, you know, uh, running for for president in the in the second round, but later in the future, even if he doesn't, if he doesn't win. So yeah, it, it was. Uh, uh, I I thought his performance for the for this first uh, round was going to be uh, a, a bit stronger, um, and uh, you know the discussion in Argentina and among Argentine analysts was whether he was going to be able to win in the first round or he was going to be to the second one. Uh, and that didn't happen. Uh, and Massa, as you said, the candidate from from the government coalition, was able to uh, got pretty much nine more points than in the first round. Uh, Millet got exactly the same amount, the same percentage. Uh, you know, twenty twenty nine point yeah. nine in this case, and and thirty point zero four last time. So pretty much the same percentage. So he he among the new people who who voted in this election, uh, he got the same the same the same amount of votes. So Millet seems to me like a bit, you know an anti politician, someone who wields anti politics. Um, very explicitly. And I think in contrast, perhaps to some other anti-politicians, the most obvious ones being something like Trump, um, is that 
Millet's radical libertarianism makes him perhaps an even more consistent anti-politician insofar as he wants to dismantle large parts of the state. So um, it's a really restricted role for democratic politics that um, he advances, I think, no? Yeah, to, to, to dismantle, and, and it became, uh, all, that, that big ideological statement became fully grounded in the argument of dismantle, dismantling the legacy of uh, Peronism, basically, right? The, the state, uh, unions, uh, government, government uh, regulations, uh, subsidies, everything, and, and thousand more things that you have heard during the campaign, uh, uh, were captured under the idea of the legacy of Peronism uh, or populism, uh, or he used the more the more anti-leftist uh, uh, speech. Uh, I don't. I, I I do think at the same time, and 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 that you know it might be a, a slightly different from the experience of Donald Trump in the U.S. Uh, I do believe that in his anti-politics, uh, uh, he ended up uh, embracing. A kind of a specific kind of um, uh, again indictment, uh, highly politicized uh, of the forty the last forty years uh, of how democracy work, or, or in this case how democracy has not worked as people expected, and an 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 indictment of the foundational pacts. Uh, that in Argentina basically brought together the idea of civil and political rights with a, a broader uh, notion of social uh, justice and social rights uh, as as the main source of legitimacy of the political regime, different and stronger than the experience in other democratic transitions in Latin America. Of course, with a lot of Latin American roots from the 19th century on that based the idea of political sovereignty in, 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 in the realization of some material gains. But but if you see, well, the case of Brazil, but but more famously the case of Chile until the, the explosion uh, of 2019, um, I think in Argentina it was much clearer that um, political rights in themselves only uh, stood if they were able to fulfill and to deliver uh, some material gains. The, the foundational, you know, uh, President Alfonsín, the, the first president of the democratic transition, his more most famous slogan was "Con la democracia se come, se cura y se educa." With democracy, we eat, uh, we get cured, and we get education. Um, and unlike the rest of Latin America, uh, well, you know, the, the, the whole picture is very uneven, but, but Argentina is in so many levels consistently worse than 40 years ago. Mm. Which didn't happen. Doesn't happen in 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 this when you make the same comparison. Uh, well, in the case of Bolivia, of course, but in the case of Chile, Uruguay, or Brazil, you don't have the same kind of a, a, a notion of declining. Uh, yeah, which is is a decline that you can actually argue that 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 started in the dictatorship and and so on and so forth. But 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 the promise of of rebuilding that that kind of dream of an egalitarian society, but this time fully uh, 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 tied, uh, linked to to the idea of political rights and institutional democracy um, was 
probably the most fundamental uh, basis and source of legitimacy of democracy. To be able to to point that out and and make a criticism of that and and came up with an alternative. It, it it does sound and in so many ways was anti politics, but it, it it did bring uh, a new agenda. Mm. So uh, with a different I, notion of human rights, with a different notion of how the economy should work, along the, this line of what you just mentioned, uh, with kind of a you know at, at the way he delivered, of course, was 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 totally out of control and crazy. Uh, so it, it was much easier for us to to put some some distance. But when you see the rational probably might not be the right word in this case, but when you see the rationale of why people said that they uh, felt inclined to vote for him, there was a lot of, uh, you know, a, sort of a, an alternative way of politicization and a different way of seeing the relation between collective collective action and individual success and the relation between the state uh, and, and individual prosperity that you know, it 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 put forward uh, a vision of society. You can we can call that politics or not, but but it was a some sort of coherent criticism of one specific way of understanding uh, politics and and putting together an alternative one. Hmm. So I mean, well, both the topic of decline and uh, a longer discussion of Peronism is something that we'll come back to. Um, I say this also for listeners' benefit, who might be um, have. A vague notion of what Peronism is, but um, there's so much to explore in that. It's a very multifaceted political force. I think it's fascinating. Um, we'll come on to that in, in a, just a second. Um, but firstly, just briefly again on Millet, he seemed to have a lot of momentum behind him. There's a lot of enthusiasm in a situation in which there's very little, I think, political enthusiasm um, in Argentina as a whole, um, a lot of uh, disappointment frustration and anger. Um, and Millet is obviously able to challenge that as a sort of outsider candidate and has the usual tropes of, um, of you know, today's um, outsiders or, you know, quote unquote populists. Um, that term might be problematic. We're going to explore that a little bit more in a second. But, um, you know, in, in similarity with anyone like Bolsonaro or Trump or whoever else you want to mention, um, is able to use a sort of um, you know, frank talking, um, aggressive language and whatever as a way of signifying that they don't follow the, um, you know, the, the the modes of decorum and the speech codes and whatever that establishment politics does and therefore signal that he's not like um, the rest of them. I wonder how much, because he is a, a libertarian who has talked about dollarizing the Argentinian economy, um, cutting 15 percent of uh of, of gdp of the st- spending of the state um or i think that's correct right in in 15 of gdp terms of, of the state spending um and various other kind of libertarian measures that you might some listeners might be inclined to think that he's a president would be a president of the rich um do you buy that interpretation and what who did he appeal to kind of across argentinian society who does he appeal to across argentinian society yeah, well, he 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 does. Uh, he he still appeals like uh, to at, at least a third of the population, right? Uh, well, I think it's uh, it's just soon to tell uh, in terms of reading the map, the the geographical and social map uh, of what his political base is. Uh, but he seems to be running uh, across uh, a broad social alliance uh, that, surprisingly or not, 
and even though I agree with you that it would be a government for the rich, uh, appeals among um, uh, popular sectors, but some particular uh, specific uh, um, uh, groups in, in popular sectors, particularly the youth, uh, young people, Mm-hmm. Who, in many cases, you know, the, the uh, in Argentina, people vote starting starting uh, sixteen, and that was a big achievement of the government of Cristina Kirchner, uh, that faced a strong opposition from the right uh, at the time, and now became uh, one of the main sources for for Millet, uh, uh, like spectacular rising into into politics. Um, young people. Um, mostly in the informal economy, in in the so many different arrangements of the informal economy, people who, for the most part, see all this jargon of the welfare state and, and labor regulations and, and a state that protects you uh, as as simple uh, words that have not materialized and have that mm. don't really relate with their experience uh, in society, with their experience in the economy, and with their experience in the relation with the state, which is, of course, omnipresent among popular sectors, uh, but it's not uh, a relation that they might conceive in terms of emancipation, in terms of beneficial uh it's a negotiation. It has to do a lot with, with some forms of political, social, and, 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 and police control over how they behave, what they earn, and how they spend it. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, we we see uh, the state and we uh, make sometimes sort of overarching claims about what it means uh, for people. And I think in, in this growing group uh, of young people in the formal economy, uh, might be their first, their second, or maybe the third generation whose relation with the experience of uh, uh, the state, the experience of uh, um, regular uh, work and labor regulations is totally alien. Right. Uh, so, the, so for them, people... yeah. So, no, so, for, so for them, the the idea of individual effort, uh, either in their material practice or uh, as a horizon, makes much more sense. Uh, even though if it is expressed in a more radicalized, ideologized way, the way Millet did it, uh, it, might, it might appeal to them. I think the, the, the one reason still, of course, is too soon. Uh, this just happened a few hours ago, but, but one reason why that didn't expand even further is that the government was more efficient, or the, the, the candidate, from the government coalition was more efficient in in so showing the dangers uh, of expressing these feelings through this political alternative. Mm. So a bit of a, a certain and, politics and of fear I, around around like exactly. yeah, you may feel this way and that's fine, but don't vote for this guy. This is too far. This is crazy. Exactly. But 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 the main point of that what I what I'm what I'm thinking is that. Whatever the result is, and in the in the likely chance that Massa is the next president, uh, that kind of indictment about the relation between politics uh, and society, and the relation between democracy uh, and the material realizations, is still there. I don't think, and it's still there, and it's huge. 
uh, huge and powerful enough so a crazy deranged guy inconsistent in every possible way was able to express in a third of the population had they found someone a little bit more on track uh, we wouldn't be so calm today so th- this is the, the people he appeals to you talk about people in the informal sector and i guess that ranges from middle class into much more um i guess working class sectors although the fact of their informality means that they're not I guess, proletarian in the traditional sense. Um, but they're people who are directly uh, faced with the market. They're people kind of who live in the market in a much more direct sense than someone who's a, a, like a formal wage worker. Um, and so it's, I find it interesting that then they are, um, there is an appeal for them in someone who talks about the market like a libertarian does. Um, I think that's that's very interesting. I wondered if, though, if you could give us an example when you talk about the relationship between, you know, the kind of state and welfare, um, and the way that some the people in the informal economy may be skeptical of that. Some maybe a concrete example of um, what they what that means. What do they find um, problematic about the way that the Argentinian democratic state is is run in terms of their daily life? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and 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 I think, of course, uh, I. I follow more closely, more closely the case of Argentina and the powerful legacy of, of the Peronist version of the welfare state. But I think many of the things might, might apply to other experiences throughout Latin America. But it's uh, basically this moment in which, you know, the state intervention, government intervention is, is that that precludes people from falling even further down the social ladder without bringing them totally out of the economic decline. So, you know, in, in any place in the, in, the, in the provinces in the interior where Amilei uh, actually won, but also in places uh, in the Buenos Aires province where most of the working class uh, is, where uh, Massa actually won, but Amilei got like a huge percentage of votes, uh, you do have... You know, you have the police who is able to uh, prevent your your son and daughter from being killed by the narcos, uh, which is the same police that have dealt with the narcos. You have the the puntero, the power broker uh, from the Peronist party, who is able to deliver to you the bricks that you need so you can build your house in the in the new land that the government gave you. Um, uh, but it's also the one who provides you the bricks for a house that is going to be in so many ways, uh, you know, precarious, uh, visibly and economically and, and as a place for, for living. You have the government who provides, um, you know, public education, uh, who's, uh, that is in Argentina fam- famously free uh, at all levels and including new universities throughout the Buenos Aires provinces, uh, the Buenos Aires province, uh, but it's also the the reality of public education uh, that is it it feel it falls like really really short from the kind of demands that people have more an increasing number of people end up in the private schools because they have no place or places that don't feel that they are safe or secure or good enough for for their kids and the public schools uh, uh, become sort of a reservoir where people just 
is there. Um, so, you know, uh, you can see any of these two phases at different moments in history. And there, and then is when it's important to historicize, you know, because I think these two phases are present pretty much anywhere in any uh, relation between uh, civil society or people and, and the state. Uh, but there are some virtuous moments in which this uh, um, engagement um, produce some sort of, um, you know, social uh, uplifting. Uh, so this other phase of, of control or perpetuating decline uh, gets overshadowed. Uh, when you have this narrative, which is sort of consistent with some uh, economic data of 40 years of very unstable uh, social uplifting, to put it mildly, uh, combined with the reality of uh, two years of uh, inflation and in the Mm -hmm. brink of some sort of hyperinflation. And a right-wing leader that is able to actually express uh, to put in words uh, this this dark side of the relation that that that's what what happened so yeah. I, and, I don't and, wanna... and inflation and inflation hits um informal workers far more than um i guess wage workers well who... in, in in two fundamental ways in 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 that in the obvious ways of of, of uh, the incomes that that remain the same uh um, where when prices are uh, growing but also in terms of in particularly in the relation with the government that, that we were discussing, uh, most of the informal sector uh, makes up their income out of uh, some sort, some forms of social uh, policies. In some cases, it's 10% of their income. In many, many cases, it's 50% of their income, uh, 60% of their income. Uh, so and, and inflation has been the by default way of keeping this uh, social expenditure uh, low, right? So in, in, instead of eliminating that, you just you, if you don't adjust that by inflation, it's a way of sort of a fiscal control, control fiscal deficit, right? Um, right. Which has happened. Uh, most, if you see the numbers, uh, most of these programs in terms of purchasing power, uh, they have declined uh, enormously during the last uh, during the last five years already. Including, but 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 even if you exclude the the, the pandemic. Turning to uh, the defeated center-right candidate. Uh, One thing I thought was interesting in relation to the youth vote for Javier Millet and the enthusiasm among youth for him is that uh, Patricia Bullrich, um, who's of the center-right, encouraged uh, adults, encouraged parents to tell their kids, hey, don't vote for Millet, which I thought was funny and Funny because it seems so paternalistic, um, almost a bit of a throwback. Because Literally. nowadays, li- yeah, because nowadays you're used to quite often, you know, left wing or left liberal politicians saying, "Hey, kids, stop your parents from voting for this right winger." And this was the exact opposite. This was a right winger saying, "Hey, parents, stop your kids voting for this crazy libertarian." I thought it was a very curious sort of um, curious sort of appeal. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did happen among among the Peronist uh, candidates as well that they uh, encouraged the the elders to to preclude uh, young kids who are benefiting from from changes in the electoral law made during the Kirchner administration uh, not to vote for Millet or not to vote. Make sure that they don't find their ID. That was, that was <laughs> a common a common joke during the last uh, days. But I but 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 going to the to the main point of your of your of your question, I think that yeah, Bullrich and the Center-right, and we only call them center-right because this far-right has emerged so solidly. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it would be a simply a right-wing uh, coalition. The defeat of that coalition is, is probably the most uh, clear uh, outcome, uh, first outcome of the, of the election. It's a total collapse uh, of uh, a political alliance that, less than a year ago, had absolutely everything to win the election. Uh, yeah. And, I, and I think this is, this is this is this is striking. This is a th- and something yeah. which um, listeners may find or identify parallels um, where they live, which is that when you have a, a, a right wing populist, let's say, just to put it in kind of general terms, a right wing outsider who comes in and although it puts the left or the center left on the back foot, the biggest loser of it actually turns out to be the more establishment right, the traditional right. It's something that happened in Brazil. I'm familiar with this, um, where the PSDB party known as the Tucans were um, completely blown out of the water when Bolsonaro rose and actually have never recovered from that. Um, so I, I propose we call it Tucanization, uh, <laughs> if that's not too awkward. But anyway, leaving that leaving that aside, I think that's like, such a striking thing of what's happened here. And I wonder if this means, if we can draw some early conclusions from this election if it means that the um, traditional right has lost hegemony over the right and maybe let's say Massa wins that the Peronists hold on that the kind of the official opposition will be more Javier Millet's brand of kind of radical libertarianism and culture war than it will be the traditional right um, and, and their candidate Patricia Bullrich in this election. Yeah, that, that's that's the biggest question because uh, unlike Brazil or unlike Trump in the U.S., uh, in this case, Millet would have come only to defeat the right and then just leave the stage. Uh, in most of the places, they defeat the the, the, the center right coalition and then they they uh, got power, uh, so that became a minor problem compared to the national one. Uh, but in this case, it seems that his only successful intervention has been the destruction of the of the center right coalition. Um, we need to see that uh, what what comes ahead of us. You know, for for Millet to win, he should get. Pretty much ninety something, ninety five percent of Bullrich votes uh, to win, uh, which is like you know extremely unlikely. Um, if it if it if it doesn't happen, um, but he's able to actually uh, perform, meaning going around 40 percent. Uh, yeah, he will be the only remaining uh, candidate in a. Um, you know the right wing coalition, unlike other countries, including Brazil, uh, the the right wing coalition uh, has had a very short life in Argentina. Uh, the, the the confrontations have been uh, have been played out differently because of because of Peronism, who was that was able to actually capture uh, parts of the of the right and parts of the left, and um, and right the right wing coalition as such only took shape. 
politically and electorally in 2008. Uh, so it's a very short story, uh, deeply linked, and, it, and, and they profit from that politically, uh, deeply linked to a confrontation against Kirchner and the Kirchners as a sort of a, 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 a diverted version of Peronism, like the worst components of Peronism um, that have now disappeared. Uh, so uh, the, 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 the sinking of Patricia Bullrich uh, and, and the sort of a crisis in the right-wing coalition goes hand in hand, if, if that happens, uh, with the relative death of Kirchnerismo as mm-hmm. a main uh, driving force on the left Peronist coalition. In that sense, both Millet's intervention but Massa's uh, success, if that happens, uh, it could be the end of politics as we know it for the 21st century. That was pretty right. much a pendulum, or a pendulum, yeah, between uh, a sort of a right wing coalition built around the idea of confronting the Kirchners and the Kirchners uh, uh, and, and and the legacy of of Christina Kirchner above all uh, as a sort of a preserving for their political basis uh, the benefits from the golden years uh, against the the incoming right wing coalition uh, that seems to have totally melted. Yeah, and Massa doesn't seem to be able to, or willing to express uh, any kind of legacy of the Kirchner years. So, as you say, a lot of things are seem to be melting and falling apart. I want to maybe pick apart the the elements and uh, look at their look at them in a little bit more historical depth. As you have already indicated, Argentinian politics is Peronism, Peronism, Peronism which monopolizes a huge swathe of, of the political spectrum. And then you have an opposition to Peronism, which defines itself purely in opposition to, to Peronism. And it seems like both Peronism and, or a certain version of Peronism and anti-Peronism are, are both in crisis now. So um, with that uh, in mind, we should maybe go back and look at what Peronism is. Um, we, I, I'm sure we could talk for probably about two hours just going through the history of Peronism. So we're not going to do that. We don't have enough enough time. But if you could give us a bit of a history, um, starting with Peron, I guess, um, and um, that, and kind of take us forward in, in time, because I think it's one of the most interesting and emblematic political forces of, of the second half of the 20th century. So it's worth spending a little bit of time on. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's, it's it's so it's so central that that we were joking today that Peronism was able to come back even before living, which is what's actually <laughs> happening now. Uh, it doesn't happen uh, almost anywhere else. But uh, you know, if you if you're gonna go back to to the beginning of Peronism, um, Peron was able to express. Uh, sort of a watershed moment, post-war, 1945, uh, that, you know, it, it might have, with, from a, from the opposite political spectrum, some of the kind of, of, of indictments to the old regime that Millet was uh, trying to perform these, these days. He was able to uh, um, refer to the previous 15 years as, as years of deprivation for... Uh, 
emerging and at that time uh, uh, dismissed political subject that was going to be the working class, uh, deprived of uh, their own rights, uh, not only as individuals, but mostly collectively as, as workers. And from a position in office was able to deliver very fast and very efficiently uh, before coming to power as, as, as uh, Secretary of Labor, uh, a set of political and, and economic rights uh, immediately associated to, to him and later to, to his movement. So it, it, it pops up in, in politics as sort of a breaking point with the old regime on the one hand and a breaking point uh, clearly grounded uh, on the idea of social rights, on the idea that in democracy we all have uh, rights, uh, me, uh, you know, uh, the owner of the company and Zuckerberg and we all have the same vote, but there's something that we have to do uh, so we have the same kind of influence. Uh, and so for me to have the same influence that Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, I, I don't know why I'm thinking about him now. Uh, I have the Facebook page somewhere here. So that's why uh, I came up with, with his name. Uh, so we can have the same kind of influence. Um, uh, I have to, we, the government has to add to my individual rights, the rights that we can have as a group, workers. That's that's the basic, in a very basic way, the idea of social rights. Similar to the idea of you know civil rights, the adjective that we add to the idea of rights, uh, that you can think about civil rights in terms of the United States. We all have the same right to vote, but you know there are some uh, people that for uh, racial, uh, some forms of racial discrimination cannot have the same kind of influence, so they have to have additional set of protections, rights, and, and, and policies so they can have the same influence, not only in the case of social rights, in defending their own interest, not only in terms of having uh, good salaries or having housing, but in terms of having a, a say in what the nation should look like. In its foreign mm. policy, uh, in its culture, and its in its sports, and in its education system, and anything, right? Uh, so it's not a classist uh, argument only, but a national one. Um, and it's totally associated with that at a moment of of, of, of an immense um, economic wealth and, and 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 productivity and modernization of the Argentine economy that is of course precedes Peron but is translated politically under his movement mostly during the first six years of his of his administration um, and that sort of imprint uh, leaves a legacy among workers uh, of Peronism associated uh, as the instrument through which you can advance your uh, economic rights and your political representation. It has become at the same time, and sort of an, an, in a sort of contradiction or a tension, uh, the party of the status quo, the party that was able to actually to call to order these same workers that were under his reign. You right. can see that mostly there's, during the 40s. There's a very paternalistic relationship with, with the workers. Yeah. So the workers improve their situation massively, especially exactly. in the early days of pronism. I, I think, can we just talk about one episode, which I think um, exemplifies some of the, the, the contradictions or paradoxes of, of Peronism, which is the Ezeiza massacre, when Peron returns to Argentina after 18 years of exile. 
18 years of exile, yeah. And uh, and basically, he was able to 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 bring uh, both the the center, the extreme right, and the extreme left, uh, you know, uh, pushing for for his return and the normalization uh, of Argentine democracy, um, associated to his return and the legalization of Peronism. Uh, and when he came, uh, basically, he landed in Argentina. Uh, at the moment in which uh, paramilitary forces from the right uh, killed most of the of those who have organized the rallies for his return, uh, coming from the left, uh, with a number undetermined number between two hundred and, and, and six hundred people killed, uh, that preclude him from actually landing. He ended up somewhere else and then came back and sort of, uh, you know, it showed the the. The kind of tension inherent to to his coalition. He Peron died uh, a little bit more than a year after his his return. Uh, but the in terms of political and economic uh, uh, structure, the these contradictions and these tensions are expressed in the Rodrigazo, which is a. a a set of measures decided by the Minister of Economy, Celestino Rodrigo, a little bit after he, he passed away, uh, Perón passed away, uh, that was a, a massive devaluation uh, of the Argentine peso. And and that you can, in so many ways, see that moment as the specific uh, end of the Peronist legacy in terms of expansion of social and economic gains for for the working class. From then on, of course, you have you know uh, different different moments, uh, different ups and downs. But but that seems to be the breaking point in the longer in the longer history uh, from the end of the world to to today. The main exception to that is the first decade of the Kirchner's administration, where this. Sort of a, a shorter uh, comprised, and we see now not not particularly sustainable form of expansion of political, economic, and social citizenship took place, uh, which is a different context that we can talk about that later. But but I think it's the basics of the legitimacy of the of the Kirchner of the Kirchners afterwards. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, as you've said, Peronism included elements from the far left and the far right and, and parts in between. Um, basically everything, you know, the, the, the far right elements massacred the far left elements um, That in, in 73. But in moving forward, you even have a kind of neoliberal expression of, of Peronism. Um, and then you finally have the most, the latest iteration, I suppose, is, is Kirchnerismo, named after um, the husband and wife, uh, both having been presidents. Uh, Nestor and Christina Kirchner. Can you explain a little bit what is distinct about uh, Kirchnerismo, um, what its proposals are, have been, and um, you know how it fits kind of in, in the wider history of per- well, wider history of Peronism and the within the the wider Peronist bloc. Like, how does this faction um, come to become the leading component of of, of Peronism in the twenty first century? In the in the twenty first century, and actually, even if you now that you when you were talking, I was thinking about it. If you put it in the longer history from the beginning of Peronism, those ten years of the Kirchner administration are the only ones in which the memory of the expansive years 
of prosperity for workers that were lived between 1945 to 1953 uh, were actually back in the actual material experience of workers and and this more heterogeneous uh, political and social base of the 21st century workers unemployed people working on the informal sector and minor different kind of minorities uh not that that leave the process of uh expansion, not only of economic, but also political and cultural uh, citizenship. Um, so, you know, it's huge. It's, 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 it's probably, if Peronism is, is just memory, uh, the only reason why it's not only memory is because of these few years uh, between uh, 2003 and, and 2015, more or less. Uh, Peron left power in 1955, came uh, in '73, uh, Peronism was in in office in those bloody, terrible economic, cultural, and political years until '76, and then the other uh, uh, time in which they were in power was under Menem, who actually was the one who put forward the neoliberal reforms that that put an end to the Peronist legacies in the in the in the government. So yes, so Peronism the, 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 in the name of Peronism, Peronism undermines itself, right, or or yeah. um, destroys its legacy under Carlos Menem. Exactly. Yeah, that that was that was the main uh, the main point why Menem was was very efficient, and and it, with that also uh, put an end to a period of uh, very high inflation that had started with Rodrigazo and led to hyperinflation in 1989 to 1993. So that kind of success uh, gave him legitimacy to to dismantle uh, the the legacy of the welfare state enacted in 1945. Uh, But the, the main, you know, the main association, and I think historically it's going to be clear uh, uh, between uh, Kirchnerismo and, and Peronism is, is basically that. As a, as a faction, uh, I think you used the word faction, uh, was able to capture and universalize uh, this memory of the experience of the first years of Peronism. I think uh, there were so many differences. Um the good ones is that unlike Peronism at the beginning, uh, it didn't have the component of a democratic authorization, uh, authoritarianism that was characteristic of Latin American populists at that time, Vargas, Cárdenas, or, or Perón in Argentina. And it was much more democratic. It was, you know, it ruled through normal, regular elections and institutions. It lost election and left power like any normal uh, political movement. Uh, but also... Uh, put attention to a bunch of uh, what we would have called respectively uh, liberal rights uh, and put them at the center of the agenda. Uh, yeah. Egalitarian marriage, uh, you name it. Uh, abortion. There were, there were a set of things. I think the kids were able to see how confrontation of on some... Uh, you know, how, how the prosperity would allow them to put at the center of the political stage confrontations on political and cultural issues uh, that uh, could benefit parts of the population and put them uh, always at the offensive uh, and the, in the political arena. Um, right. And I think the, the, 
The downside of that is that it seems Kishnerismo was not particularly skillful in doing the opposite uh, and in trying to preserve uh, those uh, rights uh, and in the moments of, uh, you know, the less expansion. Uh, yeah. So, the, I mean, the, mo- I, the moderate advance between 2003, oh, and that's also, of course, something that happens in the rest of Latin America, but the, 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 the economic model of economic expansion was based mostly on, on the commodities boom uh, and was not always able to actually translate in some form of endogenous uh, and, sust- and also sustainable uh, economic prosperity in the in the long run. Yeah, I mean, we, we've discussed it briefly on this podcast before with a previous guest, uh, Fabio Luiz, um, talking about the way that Kirchnerismo as part of the wider kind of pink wave uh, often pursued the path of least resistance um, insofar as it um, was able to uh, respond a bit to the demands of the streets, but um, without really having any major institutional break either. Um, one, one thing I'm, I, I find interesting is about Argentina is that because of this long decline um, from being a quite wealthy country, um, you know, if you go back to 1910, it was richer than Germany at the time, um, not too far off where the United States was and, you know, has this massive decline, is that the rhetoric um, and appeal, political appeals based on nostalgia, which are very common in Europe and North America today, uh, insofar as they're able to, appeal, you know, there's there's a, the kind of raw material to appeal to of the period of growth from 1945 until around 73, um, the social rights that were there. there I think that, that no, there's, there is a nostalgia for that period. Across most of Latin America, that makes no sense because there's nothing to be nostalgic for. There was no golden age. But Argentina did have a golden age. That's that's the difference. And so um, I wonder how do those appeals for nostalgia play out in contemporary Argentinian politics? The Peronists can, um, can, can play on that. Do the anti-Peronists play on that at all? And does Javier Millet play, at it, play on it yeah. at all? Or does he reject it entirely? Yeah, the, the, depending uh, the way you look at it, we uh, Argentina had uh, rather nostalgias, right? Uh, basically, two the the nostalgia, the one that you were mentioning, the, the the end of the nineteenth century and the first three decades of the twentieth century, in which uh, Argentina was one of the was one of the wealthiest countries on earth, uh, highly unequal, and characterized around the idea of a uh, agricultural oligarchy uh, running the country. Uh, or the other um, uh, nostalgia for the Peronist years, right? The years in which uh, everybody ate and have housing and education and health uh, and the workers uh, had one of the best living standards in the world. No, at, at that time, caloric intake was the measure. Uh, I remember <laughs> reading some sources how many calories an Argentine worker got every day. And it was uh, at, at the beginning of Peronism, 3,241, mm. uh, the second caloric intake in the world for a worker just behind the United States, right? Uh, the the imprint of that in the national memory is so, so, is so, so huge. Um I think that that Millet was much more ambivalent about that, and um, he did mention, he did make uh, several references to the golden years, but I think they were mostly by passing and not uh, not embraced uh, enough. Um, 
he looks more certainly not probably not a utopian but a, a dystopian and i think i it was a something a, a way of now that you mention nostalgia it makes me think about it um a big part of the of the political spectrum including kirchnerismo including massa uh, and including the center uh, right coalition were speaking towards uh, a voter that they have in mind that was present was present in Argentina from the 1940s to the 1970s we're going to go back to work what does that mean for a kid who has mm. never worked his father has never worked his grandfather has never worked Uh, we have to get again this normal, the un país normal, this normal country in which everybody has access to education. So, in the case of the Peronism, they were going to argue uh, there was uh, these public hospitals, and in the other case, that they were going to get enough money through their companies so they could have a health insurance. It doesn't matter. With the, how did that appeal to people who have seen hospitals? as a place that, that is sort of denied to them, to their parents, to their grandparents. They have lived two or three generations in a radically different world. Uh, that, is not, not, that is not even nostalgia, right? So I think that, that in so many ways, uh, Millet promised something that was believable or not, but mostly he talked the more brutish uh, uh, civil society in which we live. You know, this is what it is. The state is not going to save you. I think that in so many ways, he, I don't think people fully believed that the total liberalization was going to bring equality and prosperity for all. Mm. Uh, I think it was more sort of an acceptance of the reality in which many of the voters were. So nostalgic uh, uh, politics, I think, played in, in funny ways in this election, uh, mostly by by putting uh, most of the candidates except Millet in a in a conversation with a different era the the Pern, the, mm. the Argentine of the 1940s 50s 60s and and 70s maybe that does not necessarily relate with the experience of people during these 40 years in a consistent way of course there's a lot of nuances in this very good um i'm conscious we're running out of time so i want to ask you about Um, two very slippery terms, I suppose, slip populism and anti-populism. Um, so you have written about uh, anti-populism in Argentina, but I think to discuss that, we need to understand what you mean by populism, because it's a term which has a, a different sort of register and, and meaning in, um, in Latin America, I think, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century, relative to what it does in Europe and North America today. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. And of course, I mean, I think... Uh, I use uh, pop, I, I try not to use populism as a, as a category, uh, but only as a historical experience in order to refer to, as, as we were talking before, these movements, uh, uh, authoritarian, but that yet uh, worked on the expansion of social, political, and economic citizenship between the 1930s and the 1960s in Latin America, 
so many ways centered, but not exclusively around a, a, a charismatic figure that established a, a link between the social and political transformations and their own uh, uh, political leadership. And that was particularly appealing among uh, urban workers in, in Latin America. But I think uh, that is not necessarily what anti-populist uh, talk about when they talk about populism. Uh, I think anti-populism as a powerful force, and I think that in so many ways Belay was the target of anti-populist rhetorics, uh, is not so much about policies, but it's an interrogation about how the masses should behave in mm-hmm. a quote-unquote normal political system. Uh, is a reflection about what happened when people lost their individuality uh, and cornered by by desperation, economic or otherwise, uh, are forced to give up uh, sort of a rational uh, thinking towards the future uh, and follow their emotions, right? Um, in Argentina, the, the, the long history shows that has that has been foundational that be particularly crucial for right wing politics in understanding this nostalgic view of how the country lost track uh, in the 1910s, 20s, or, or 30s because the masses were never able to behave, right? Mm. Unlike other countries, which has happened in Brazil and in Chile in so many ways, uh, Argentine elites had always the idea that the masses should be part of politics, central part of politics, uh, that they are a legitimate, legitimate uh, player, but that unfortunately they were diverted from the normal path uh, of modernization uh, by by Perón in, in the case of in the case of Argentina. Um, so it has been a trope in in right wing politics for for understanding uh, the the history and and the. The current politics. I in in this election is one of the first times in which the same ideas were applied towards those who supported Millet. Mm. Those who are not rational enough because they were following a country a, a candidate that we were going to hurt them. They didn't understand clearly what they were doing. Uh, they are desperate because they are unemployed. Uh, so the, they are acting against their own interest. Uh, anti-populist rhetoric is mostly interrogation about how the masses act uh, uh, politically, and 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 it it reenacts infinitely uh, this uh, idea, this supposed tension between uh, political players that act rationally and those who act based on emotions. Those based on emotions are really bad, uh, are animals. The animal rhetoric is particularly uh, powerful. Um, Non-human nature is is, is something terrible that we should avoid at all costs when we come into into democratic politics uh, against, uh, you know, rational uh, understanding of how society works. And, and by rational, uh, explicitly or implicitly, they always mean economic relations, right? Yeah, I, I find that fascinating. I, and it's maybe a, a, something that I assume you feel is something that can be used or was a way to understand politics beyond Argentina, um, indeed, in, in Europe and North America. Um, we, we on this podcast have talked about 
uh, something we call neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, which is the um, hysteria on the part of the liberal establishment when faced with um, challenges, both from the populist left and the populist right. Um, and it, it strikes me that, yeah, this anti-populism is, is, is a common thread, though the, the Argentinian case is precisely so interesting because, as you say, the incorporation and inclusion of the masses has been a, a, a major feature of, of Argentinian politics and political rhetoric. Um, because their uh, entrance was so so powerful, right? The eruption of Peronism, uh, you know, Cardenism and, and, and Vargas in, in Brazil also make uh, made their powerful entrance into into history, but the kind of transformations uh, in a mobilized, uh, radical, militant uh, movement that that materialized around Peronism, uh, that was not something that happens in in the case of Vargas because it diverted towards a more authoritarian thing and didn't happen in the case of Mexico because you know the party actually took over the legacy of Cardenas and turned it into something else. So yeah, it, it's it's, it's I don't want to do the Argentino-centric thing uh, of, of thinking that it's unique, but that thing is very unique. Right, right. No, very. Uh, that, that's yeah. I, I suspect it, it's certainly more more clearly expressed there. Um, but I, I mean, just thinking a little bit out loud here, I'm I wonder, you know, populism as it's understood, um, you know, not so much in terms of the Perón or Vargas form of populism, um, let alone of the um, agrarian populism of the 19th century United States, but of the populism of the of the era of technocracy, the populism of the era of neoliberalism um, that we currently live through, that that populism in a way is a way of um, incorporating the masses, at least rhetorically, in an age which is culturally very democratic, um, in which old forms of elitism don't apply, um, are not seen as valid, but in which is, is it is extremely economically unequal um, and in which actual democracy is is hollowed out. So like populism is a way of kind of calling in the masses, but without really giving them anything concrete, whereas this anti-populism is a way of kind of shutting them out when they when they misbehave. And exactly. it's this sort of push-pull. Exactly. There, there's, a, there's a great political scientist from Chile Camila Vergara, who argues uh, in favor of uh, plebeian politics as an answer uh, and a rejection of both projects. The populist one who actually uh, tried to figure out how to fit into into something in which people are not being invited, uh, an anti-populist who actually embraced the idea of rejecting people <laughs> uh, 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 participation in a legit, on a legitimate basis, uh, you know, Throughout the the entire political process, um, yeah, <laughs> the the short answer is yes. I I do think uh, as a again as a historical experience uh, that populism in the case of Argentina uh, lived in this tension between uh, social and political expansion uh, of mostly workers. Uh, but not only, and a call to restore the status quo and to uh, embrace social and political hierarchies in terms of crisis, uh, in, in times of crisis. Um, it depends on in which moment of the of the history you take a look at it, uh, if it feels uh, more sympathetic or, or less. Um, but in the end, unlike the anti-populist indictment of populism as a sort of a Jacobin form of politics, intractable way of putting the masses as an obstacle for economic modernization. Uh, 
if there is a problem with populism, it's exactly the contrary. Uh, is the way in which it has engaged uh, in a sort of a broken uh, modernization in this tension of actually bringing uh, workers under the control of the state or the political process or the process of selection of candidates in, in some political parties, etc., etc., uh, precludes in so many ways uh, workers and, and, and the poor from embracing the political instruments of an actual revolution, right? Yeah, yeah, no, perfect. Um, so I want to thank you for, for joining us, um, you know, in the morning after the election. Um, and I know uh, time is short, but just one last question, I guess. Uh, how do you see this, the election playing out in three weeks? Um, and how do you see each scenario? You know, if, if um, Massa wins and the Pronus hold on, does that accelerate and intensify the crisis? Um, and if you have a, a Millet government, <laughs> that also seems to suggest that the crisis will intensify in its own way. So um, do you see any um, optimistic scenario? How do you see it playing out? No, optimistic. No, well, I'm I'm Jewish, so I, I I usually don't see optimistic scenarios uh, in general as a rule in life. But uh, but I would say no. I mean, no, there's one optimistic scenario. I would say uh, unless there's uh, something unexpected like a corruption scandal or economic an economic crisis that is are out of control in such a very short time. We're talking about three, four weeks. Uh, there's very little chances that Millet is able to actually capture the entire vote of Patricia Bullrich and come to win the election. It requires mm. it will require a miracle uh, in, in mathematical terms, but also it will mean uh, that he should develop the the more uh, subtle uh, skills of a political broker making alliances here and there, and it's not certainly his strongest point, <laughs> to, to, to put it to put it mildly. No, uh, so, so that would be a good news. Uh, then comes everything else. Uh, Argentina is is about to deal with its uh, fiscal deficit and this deficit in the in its uh, foreign reserves in a drastic way whoever wins the election. And if Massa does it, uh, the consequences in the short run are going to be terrible. Uh, there's no question about that in terms of uh, adjustment of public spending uh, and in terms of the social impact that that will have. That's one. Then the other part that is also not uh, particularly good is that if there was a consensus among the three candidates uh, in this election was to embrace extractivism as the only way out uh, of the fiscal and, uh, and currency problem in Argentina. They all agree enthusiastically uh, without saying that they agree, but they did, uh, that you know, uh, oil, soy, lithium and anything you can get as much and as fast and as unregulated as you can out of earth uh, would be our way out of uh, of deficit and you know that 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 makes very difficult to have a conversation uh, about the huge uh, environmental and social impact of uh, of that strategy, an impact that, uh, of course, is going to be felt uh, nationwide, but particularly the poor. You know, uh, the next president is going to take office on December 10th. Uh, 
temperatures are going to be around 30 something. Uh, if, if all the predictions are true by December, January and March, uh, like thousands of people are going to die in Argentina due in direct relation to, to heat waves. Uh, and those thousands are most likely going to be workers, people who voted for Millet or, you know, fans of Taylor Swift, whatever. But it's going to be people who don't have the resources to take care and to shelter. Um, so it, 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 it's, good. it's a strategy that uh, it doesn't have the features of a political suicide the way we were able to see so clearly in the case of Millet but it doesn't look optimistic uh, in terms of emancipation and finding, in terms of finding sustainable and, and uh, more egalitarian ways of getting out of the lack of resources, public resources on the one hand and currency on the, on the other, right? So that's something that is going to happen no matter who wins. Uh, and it seems that the difference in way in the ways they're going to deal with these problems uh, are less than what it looks by their political style. Excellent. Thank you very much, Ernesto. Uh, for, no, thank you for so us. much for having me. It was a lot of fun and uh, it made me think about something that is happening as we speak. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Listener, would you like to know more? I can recommend a recent episode in which we talked about sovereign debt crises called Don't Pay Them Back. Argentina features in a major way in that. It's linked in the show notes. Also, for more on the South American left and the pink tide, see our episode Pink Tide Paradoxes. And on Chile's revolt and Argentina's last elections, see Hot Chile and other neoliberal failures, also linked in the show notes. And if you like this podcast, make sure you drop us a review. And if you want more, subscribe at patreon.com slash bungacast, where you get original episodes with regular guests, extended interviews, and more. Coming up, we've got stuff on NATO in Eastern Europe, Aboriginal issues and lockdown in Australia, more on the war in Gaza, and a reading club on Giovanni Arrighi's Adam Smith in Beijing. That's at patreon.com slash bungacast. We'll see you very soon. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.